Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that. You're a good man, Aaron. I don't care what Dwayne says about you. You're a great, great man. Thanks, buddy. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, man. Amen. Just incredible stories. Uh, absolutely incredible stories uh, of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, of all uh, that he is doing here locally, uh, doing globally. Got to hear great stories last night. One more story I just wanted to share with you. We get to share with you that we have over 50 high school students and uh, volunteer leaders up in the mountains right now at their annual high school retreat, and they're, they're doing the same thing that we are this morning. They're, they're worshiping, and they're praying, and they're studying the Bible, and uh, they're uh, probably a lot more tired than you are this morning. They're definitely a lot smellier than you are. Uh, it's been a long weekend, but uh, just already hearing just incredible stories of what God is doing uh, in them and through them this weekend, and I, I know I've said this before. I just want to say it again. I love the way that this church cares about the next generation. Uh, this is the sixth year in a row, six years straight, where we have had too many adult volunteers sign up to go on our student retreats. We've had to tell people, don't volunteer. Sorry, we're full. We need to save rooms for students. That would be a little counterintuitive if we had all the volunteers going that we would uh, that want to go. Now, let that sink in for a second. These are folks, these are men and women from this church who sacrifice dozens of hours a weekend. Many of them have to take time off from work to do this. They, they volunteer to go hang out with some, you know, some squirrely middle schoolers and some moody high schoolers and drive up in the mountains with them and eat crummy camp food and get no sleep whatsoever. Oh, that's crazy. That, by the standards of the world, that is insane. And it's just commonplace here. It's because they love Jesus, and they, and they want these students to love Jesus, and they want to express that to them. So I, I reflect on it. We want to pray for them. Uh, I just love sharing that, and we pray for them. pray that God continues the great work he's doing. We pray for us and our time here together as well. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, your faithfulness to the next generation as well. You are a good and gracious Father. Lord, we lift these students, we lift these leaders, we lift these uh, uh, hundreds of students uh, total from dozens of churches up in the mountains up to you. Lord, reach them. Change hearts, change lives. Help them to, to identify what their next steps are and what that looks like for them as they follow you. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us do the very same thing this morning. No matter what uh, we, we brought in here today, no matter what kind of morning or week we've had prior to this, Lord, I pray that you would Help us to identify what does it look like for us to take the next step in following you. Where we need encouragement, Lord, encourage us. Where we need challenge, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us in that. In all this, we pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Uh, Whitney, would you mind grabbing Aaron? The uh, slide setting is actually incorrect. If you wouldn't mind doing that. Thank you. Um, so, amen. Well, I don't know about y'all. Uh, I miss the good old days. I miss the good old days when life was simpler and people were definitely kinder and time moved a little bit more slowly. Uh, anyone here ever miss the good old days? Show of hands. Yeah, yeah, okay, see some nods, see some hands there. And as a pastor, I'll tell you what I really miss. I really miss the good old days of the early church, like the church of Acts. Like that was the good old days, right? That's when followers of Jesus were bold in their faith. That's when the church was united. We didn't have all the division and the argument. We didn't fight against each other. We, we fought to outserve one another. 
And God, it just seemed like he grabbed these extraordinary people and did extraordinary things through them day after day after day. I miss the good old days. Now, whether you think about the good old days as maybe your childhood, uh, maybe, it, maybe it's a time period in U.S. history, the 1950s is sort of the, the quintessential you know, good old days that a lot of people think about. Or maybe you know, you're like me and you, you miss the good old days of the church. There's really only one problem uh, with, with our yearning for the good old days. And that's, <laughs> our, our recollection is not 100% accurate. This is something that we do as human beings. We, 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 uh, there's a phrase even, ro- looking through rose-colored glasses, we tend to remember the past a, a little bit brighter, a little bit softer than maybe it actually was. In fact, there's a, there's a journalist from the turn of the 20th century, a guy named Franklin Pierce Adams. It's like a most American name ever. He just needs a Washington or a Lincoln in there. It's a great name. But he has a great little quip about the good old days. He says this, Nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that even as I reflect on the early church. And, all, and don't get me wrong, extraordinary things that God did through the early church. Extraordinary things. But if someone was going to disagree with me in calling the early church and the church of Acts the good old days, you, probably, you want to know who it probably would be? It'd be the members of the early church. <laughs> It'd be the people who were part of those communities. It certainly didn't feel like the good old days to them. They didn't feel so extraordinary. They didn't feel so marvelous. They didn't feel so united and bold all the time. In fact, they faced tremendous division. They faced tremendous doubts and fears and past failures that they were wrestling with. In fact, they, in their own words, are not super flattering about their response to Jesus at all times. They're very honest, brutally honest, you could say. And not only that, all the external forces they were facing too, a lack of resources, lack of credibility, even, even persecution, hostility for following Jesus. Now, God did extraordinary things through the early church, but you could say it, it sort of was against all odds. No one was really expecting this. In fact, there's a scholar, a guy named Rodney Stark, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, where he really wrestled with this question of how in the world did this take off? And he, he asked that question here, He says this, all the questions concerning the rise of Christianity are one. How? How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? It's a good question. Now, Stark is a, is a scholar, he's an academic, he's writing to other academics, and he's writing to students, and so maybe a more, more colloquial, a more blunt way of asking this question would be, how did these schmucks, how did this group of nobodies from the middle of nowhere against all odds change the world? That's a good question. That's a huge question for us to wrestle with. In fact, as we dive into our missions emphasis, a time of the year where we, we ask questions about, about our personal mission. What is the mission, my mission, the mission of our families? As we wrestle with the question, what is the mission of Deer Creek Church? What do we believe God has called us to accomplish for the sake of his kingdom? As, as we talk about the mission of the church, just the global church around the world, this is a question we're going to be wrestling with. We're going to actually be digging into how, uh, against all odds, that's what we're titling this series, How in the world did this happen? So clearly, from this title, we're starting a casino here at Deer Creek. No, don't 
Don't send me angry emails about this. That's not the point. No, the point is no one was betting on the early church. No one who observed the early church was betting on them. They weren't even really betting on themselves. Everything seemed stacked against them. And yet somehow, some way against all odds, we are here on a different continent in a different country speaking a different language talking about the early church, talking about what they did. And so that's what we're going to wrestle with. We're going to look at the extraordinary things that they did, and we're going to look at all the different ways. Uh, each week we're going to be focusing actually on a facet of the challenges and the obstacles the early church faced. And this week we're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about failure. Hooray! Yeah, it's really, really encouraging, really, really upbeat. That's what we're going to be digging into this morning. And we're going to look at a, uh, a passage from Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, go, you, can, uh, you can turn there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the screen uh, behind me here in just a second. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, period, we, we actually have free Bibles out in the lobby. We mention this sometimes. If you're here and you don't have a Bible today, we'd love just for you to grab one of those after service. Grab a couple. Take one home. Take one to a friend. Um, those, are, those are free to a good home. But we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4 together. And uh, just a little bit of context here as we dive into a passage about the early church. Uh, Acts is written uh, following the, the four gospel accounts, and so, you know, in the events taking place in Acts are the events of the early church. So after the birth, the life, the, the death, the ministry of, of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, we, we dive into the book of Acts. And actually, at the conclusion of the gospels, there's a very famous passage, many of you have probably heard of it before, called the Great Commission. And Jesus, following his crucifixion, following his resurrection, he gathers his disciples together, he gathers uh, this group of nobodies from nowhere, and he says this to them. He says, go, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I've taught you. And I like to imagine as Jesus is saying this to them up on a mountaintop as they're doing this, they, oh, you're talk oh you mean us. Oh, oh you mean, you, you're talking to us, the people who just finished denying you and some of us betrayed you and ran away from you and, our messy, failure-ridden, fearful past. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah I, I mean you. But here's the kicker. I'm going to be with you. Everywhere you go and everything you do, I will be with you. And Jesus lives up to that. He, he ascends into heaven. He sends his Holy Spirit, his comforter, his encourager, his counselor. And the Holy Spirit comes. And lo and behold, the, the first followers of Jesus start looking a lot like Jesus. It's actually pretty incredible despite their past, despite their fear and failure. And they start doing the things that Jesus did. They start doing miracles and healing people. They start sharing about this new relationship, this relationship that you can have with God. It's, it's not about the religious institutions. They start sharing uh, e each other's resources and sharing food and homes and shelter. They start caring for the people in their communities that are hurting. And they start gaining some momentum good things start happening. People start coming to faith. People start following Jesus. And so we're going to look at the first adversity that they really face, the first organized resistance they face to that here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are the principal characters here and uh, two of Jesus' first disciples. And they've uh, just performed a miracle. A, a man who is crippled for years, unable to walk for years, has been healed. And it's, it's this incredible miracle. And they're using this opportunity to, to share with other people that they should follow Jesus. And so we read these words, Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. This is the religious establishment. They were greatly disturbed 
because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Now, stop me if you if you heard this before. So we have, there's a messianic movement, there's something going on in the city of Jerusalem, and people are talking about a new, new, new kind of relationship you can have with God. It's not about what you accomplish, not what you perform, it's about your identity. Uh, it's a new way to relate to other people. Actually, healings are happening and miracles are happening, and here's the Sanhedrin. Here is the, the ruling elite, religious elite, and they come down like a hammer on top of this. And scripture tells us that they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. They were greatly disturbed. That's an interesting word there in the Greek, just describing uh, how the Sanhedrin felt about this situation. The Greek word there is diapaneo. You can try and say that with me. Diapaneo. Gesundheit, yeah. That was an awful joke. I apologize. Yeah, diapaneo. And this is, a, this is an interesting word. It's translated as disturbed here. It's got a little bit of a range to it, though. There's a, there's a sense of frustration, which we, we definitely see. It's interesting, there's also this, this sense of being worn out, this sense of fatigue as well. The Sanhedrin, the religious elite, the rulers, they're frustrated that disciples are doing this. They're also just tired of it. They're fatigued. Parents of little ones, this is kind of a, that feeling of frustration, fatigue. This is probably how you feel maybe 4 or 5 p.m., uh, you know, that witching hour, the day is winding down, diapaneo. Parents of teenagers, there's like an eight-year stretch where you're kind of feeling frustrated and fatigued, like, this again? This again? We've already done this. We've been here before. Why has this not sunk in yet? And that is what the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, the rulers are feeling. Diapaneo, frustration and fatigue. This is annoying. You disciples are like a bad penny. You always turn up. Didn't we deal with this? This rabbi, this master of yours, we put him to death. You ran. You fled. You failed. Let it go. It's done. There's even a sense, it's a safe assumption that for the Sanhedrin, as they're observing this, there's a sense of embarrassment that they're feeling. Now, there may be a little bit of embarrassment themselves, like, uh, we thought we'd put this to rest, and here are these guys, they're back. Embarrassed for Peter and John. See, the ancient Near East, the, the, the classical Near East, was, a, was an honor-shame-based society. And when you pledged your life to follow a rabbi, and you pledged yourself to his service, to follow him and to take his yoke upon yourself. And then you absolutely publicly deny him, turn away from him, abandon him in his moment of need. The shame that you would feel from that would be absolutely crushing. You wouldn't really want to be seen in public, much less telling people that they should come and follow the one you betrayed, the one you denied, the one you failed. Frustration and fatigue. So the Sanhedrin gather these two up, not very subtly, and they toss them in jail. And it says, despite this, despite all of this history, incredible things are happening. We read the Sanhedrin's response to throwing them in jail as they face their trial the next day. We read this, Acts 4, verses 5 through 7. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest families. A lot of folks here. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? 
let me draw a modern day parallel for us, maybe what this would feel like for you. So imagine you and your, your close friend got arrested. Some of you don't have to imagine so hard. You know, you had crazy days back in college. But imagine, imagine that you and your buddy have been arrested and you're thrown in jail overnight and you're awaiting your trial the next day. You're waiting, go in for your hearing. But rather than meeting a local judge, maybe magistrate, someone to hear your trial, you're in front of the Supreme Court. Oh, 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 and by the way, the uh, Congress has sent some representatives as well and members of the executive branch. And hey, we've got some guests of honor. The Bushes and the Clintons and the Kennedys and the Roosevelts are here. That is the situation that Peter and John have found themselves in. It's a slight exaggeration, but it's not much of one. And here they are. They are in front of every single person who matters in the Jewish culture. In front of every single person of power, prestige, influence. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 elders. These are men who were respected and revered and even feared throughout this community. The high priest is there. And then these family members are here as well. Almost certainly in elevated positions, looking down on Peter and John, awaiting judgment. And with a thunderous voice, they ask, by what power or what name did you do this? Did you heal, dare to heal this person, dare to preach and teach in this way? This is a rhetorical question. They're not, they're not actually curious. Wait, wait, no, tell us the name. No, they're making a point. This is a show of force. This is straight out of the Sanhedrin playbook. This is how you put down a messianic movement. You kill the leader and you cow his followers into fear and submission. It's fun to use cow as a verb. They cow as, like, as in they are cowering. This is straight out of the Sanhedrin's playbook. They've seen the disciples run before and they say enough is enough. We are going to make them run again. They are fearful. They are failures. They've done it before. They'll break again. Let's put an end to this. And this is Peter's response. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, this healing, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. We want everyone to know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given mankind by which we must be saved. I like to imagine if they had microphones back then, this would have been a mic drop moment, just boom. Maybe a, maybe a scroll drop, I don't know. I, this is stunning. This is shocking. Where did, where did that come from? Wait, here we are, the power, the authority. We're looking down on them. We're judging them. We're supposed to be the show of force. And the Sanhedrin was astonished at what Peter said. You want to know how I know that? That's what the next verse says. <laughs> when they saw the courage, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They're shocked. They're looking at each other saying, this is not how we drew it up in the playbook. I, I gotta confess, I I'm a little surprised. I, I look at this and wait, wait, Peter? Wait, Peter? Wait, the same Peter? 
I mean, not two months ago, not two months before this, Peter was intimidated into denying Jesus by a teenage girl. And here he is. He's in front of all the most powerful people in the whole land. Everyone who matters. Everyone who has the power and the potential to hurt him. Oh, by the way, they just did it to Jesus. And here he is. The same Peter who consistently misunderstood Jesus. The same Peter who rebuked Jesus. When was the last time any of us did that? I mean, the same Peter who lied through his teeth saying, I will never, never, never deny you. Even if everyone else does, I won't do it. And then he did. That Peter, that's the one. And it shocks everyone. And it's shocking to me. You want to know who it doesn't surprise? It doesn't surprise God. See, the Sanhedrin's running their playbook. This is what they do, an act of intimidation. This is what God does. God loves to use the least qualified people in the most challenging of circumstances to accomplish his mission. He's done it time and time and time and time and time again. All throughout Scripture, the least qualified people, the people who have absolutely no right to represent him, and then they do. How? How do we go from this place of denying and failure and fear to being described by your enemies as a man of courage? Described as an ordinary person with the power to astonish the most powerful, prestigious people in the land. The cross. I know that's what, that's what you say in church. It, it's the power of the cross. The power of the cross can make even cowards brave. And, and the power of the cross can make failures succeed. This is what God does. You see, on the cross, these disciples, these, these failures, these fearful people, they saw the loving sacrifice of Jesus. They saw his sacrifice for his friends. They saw his sacrifice for his enemies. But it didn't stop there. They saw the empty tomb. Through the cross and through the empty tomb, they saw the death of death itself. And the end of death, the slayer of death, the defeater of death had said, I will be with you. I am sending my spirit into you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, it doesn't matter how much you've failed. It doesn't matter how scared you are. I will be with you. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a coward turned brave. That's what God does. That's the kind of God he is. That's his, that's his playbook. Now, you might be saying, wow, okay, if you're maybe even a little skeptical or a little bit cynical like me, okay, Joseph, that's Peter and John, right? I mean, they're like top tier. These are, the, these are the elite. Sure, they had a bad, you know, startup. But they, I mean, they are the top shelf followers of Jesus. That doesn't apply to someone like me. And the good news is, against all odds, it absolutely does. You see what happens after Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin. They astonish the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin lets them go. But they threaten them. 
not knowing what to do, not knowing exactly how to respond as the tables have been turned on them. They say, look, here's the deal. You're free to go, but if you say another word about Jesus, if you keep doing these things, if you keep telling people about Jesus, we're coming after you. We will crush you. We will, t- we will take you out. We will come after you and your friends and your family. This is done. And so we read that Peter and John go back to the early church, go back to this messy, broken group, just like you and me, says this, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Every threat, every promise, every bit of consternation. And the early church responds with worship. They respond with prayer. These people have absolutely no right to be confident. Pray the following prayer. Jumping ahead to verse 29. We pray this. Now, Lord, consider, consider their threats. All of these threats they have made against us and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You catch that? I mean, this is, this is remarkable to me. Oops. Wrong way. This is remarkable to me. Consider their threats and let us respond with boldness. I'll be honest with you, what I would have prayed for is, God, get rid of their threats. God, go get them. Go get them. I don't pray for that. Okay, maybe, God, keep me safe. Have you, you've heard what they've done. We've seen what they did to you. Keep me safe. They don't pray for that. They pray for boldness. To speak your word with boldness, to represent you with boldness, to love others with boldness, to be like Jesus with boldness. Through the cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit, even cowards can be brave. Even people who are fearful can be bold. Men and women, just like you and me. Let me, let me ask you, have you, ever, have, you ever been, have you ever been embarrassed to tell someone you're a Christian? You don't have to raise your hand. Just, just think to yourselves. I know I have. I know I've found myself in situations like, this is a great opportunity for me to represent Jesus. This is a great opportunity for me to put myself out there and share my faith. And I haven't said a word. Or another, have you ever been embarrassed by other Christians? Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I do not want to be associated with him or her. I don't want to be seen with them. You have these things in common with the early church. Have you ever thought to yourself, what possible difference can I make? God, I have failed so much in the past. Failed so much today. You want to know if I'm honest? I'm probably going to fail a lot in the future. What possible difference can I make? You have something in common with the early church. And somehow, someway, against all the odds, God uses people just like that. And he changes their hearts and they pray for boldness. Now, I I have a confession to make. I am a white, middle-class, suburban male. Surprise! Yeah, I know. That's not, not, okay, that's not the confession. I'm building up to it, though. But I am. That is who I am. That is my identity. I am quite literally one of the safest individuals in the history of the world. I have more access to education, healthcare, clothing, food, shelter, than, than really anyone, almost anyone, in the history of the entire world. You want to know the number one thing I pray for? 
safety. I confess, when I am faced with obstacles, when I'm faced with opposition, when I'm faced with hardship and trials, I pray for safety. And that realization as I've been planning this, as I've, as I've been praying through this and processing and wrestling with this, that's like a dagger in my heart. Hear me loudly and clearly. There's nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with praying for safety. There is nothing wrong with praying for protection. The Bible's full of that. R- raise your hand if you've prayed for safety or protection for someone in the last month. Yeah. Shame on you. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that. Don't let that be your takeaway. My question is, what, what is your ratio? Is, is it possible that our ratios are, are maybe out of whack? Maybe they're out of sync. Maybe, just maybe, that the opposition and the trials we're facing, God, God has put them in, in our way for us to be bold and to maybe take a risk. Think about that. What is your ratio? Here's another question. Where do you need a little less safety and a little more boldness? Is there there an area of your life where we can be like the early church? You see, because when they pray, they pray, God, consider their threats and enable us, equip us to be bold, to represent you boldly. And you want to know, if you read the next couple of verses, what happens? The room shakes. The area they are in is shaken by the power of God. And I wonder, what would it look like for an area of your life to be shaken by God's power? You can can say a lot of things about the early church. They weren't bored. Do you ever feel a little bored with your faith? Maybe we need a little less safety and a little more boldness. Health. Health crises. Is there a, a struggle or opposition you're facing with your health? Pray for healing. Pray for protection. Absolutely. Pray to represent Jesus well as you suffer. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for you in that situation. That is so, so difficult. But there's an opportunity because Jesus suffered. And he actually says, I am near to you when you were suffering, I am near to you when you were brokenhearted relationally is there is there an opportunity for you to pray for a little less safety relationally and a little bit more boldness to reach out and make connections I, I, you know i've thought about joining a small group but i don't know that's kind of risky what if I, what if those people don't like me and you know i got to tell you i know those groups i know those group leaders i know the people in those groups you won't like them <laughs> not right away but you will over time, and they will like you. And these things, relationships are risky. Anyone who's ever gotten married, anyone who's ever dated, anyone who's ever been in a relationship with friendships, know that they are risky. They can be costly. And they're worth it. They are worth it. Health, or relationships. I'll tell you the area for me. Finance. Finances. This, this is, and again, uh, we talk about this in growth track. We talk about this in our membership process. Finance is just the last taboo of our culture, right? You know, sex and power and politics, you know, that's kind of all out there. Money's just weird. It's weird to talk about. It's weird to wrestle with God. And honestly, for me, with my finances, I just like playing it safe. I just like being super, like, if I had a personal financial mascot, it would be a marshmallow holding a stop sign wrapped in bubble wrap. 
right? That's me when it comes to finances. And as I've been praying through this, I'm saying, God, what does boldness look like? We're, uh, we're, we're in this missions series, and we're trying to raise $109,000. This is something we do. This is the most we've ever tried to raise for mission, but we do this each year. And as a church, and again, I know there's tension, there's weirdness here. I feel that too with and ever talking about finances. And this money that we're trying to raise, this it's not, it's not for here, right? This is for clean water and saving lives in Guatemala. This is for orphanages. This is for church planning in Myanmar and Ukraine and locally. This is for blessing the homeless and refugees, the least and the last. That, that's what this money is for. And that's something that, that my wife and I, we, we've supported in the past, but we've never really rest, We've never really said, okay, what does boldly trusting God? Because this guy Jesus one time said, where your, tra- where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Ah. And so we've had to wrestle with that. And so Sheila and I have been praying about this, and, and we said, you know, for, for us, this is what it looks like. We're, we're going to give a whole paycheck to this. Above our tithe, above what we normally do, we just want to give a paycheck to this because this is worth it. And you want to know how I feel about that? Ah, uh, God, are you serious? Like, I don't know. Like, you say you love a cheerful giver. I'm not feeling super cheerful right now. God, there's a lot of things I could be doing with that money. We could, we could go out to eat more. Date nights are important for the marriage. God, I, you know, we have a little one. We have another one on the way. Like, God, that money would be really useful. We could, we could even save up and, like, help put our kids through college. No, no, you, even if you save. Yeah, it's still not able to. But God, there's all these things that we could do. And we prayed about it, and we, I think God wants us to be bold in this way. And that's, so that's what we're going to try and do. I, there's an invitation here, and this, by the way, this is for people who call Deer Creek their home. Uh, if you're a guest here, thank you for being here. We don't do this every Sunday. We don't plug for, for money every Sunday and talk about things like this. But this is a part of those crazy things that Christians do. We sacrifice, there are leaders sacrificing their weekends to be with students, and Christians for centuries have been sacrificing their resources to reach the least and the lost. And that's, that's why we're here, because other people did that on a different continent, in a different country, speaking a different language than 2,000 years ago. There's a, as, you, as you leave today, there's these little slips at the back. And this is a private thing, by the way. This isn't something that uh, we, we budget, so we do, we do track the amounts, but we don't track for individuals or things like that. Uh, we won't you know, hunt you down, nothing like that. No, no hit squad. But there's, a, there's just a section at the top, and it says, by faith and dependence upon God, I pledge to support this missions ministry. I just, I'm, just saying, I'm gonna do my best to, to do this. And you can put in a dollar amount there, and you tear it off, because again, there's no identifying, nothing on the top, and you just drop it in one of those baskets at the top. They're also in your bulletins, if you grabbed one of those on the way in. And it's a little reminder for you at the bottom, you just keep that. Some of you are like me, and you need to pray to, to take an extra bold step. And, and I'll, I confess, I've, we've already turned ours in because you want to know why? I would have chickened out. My wife and I already talked about this. I would have chickened out if we hadn't already turned ours in. I was like, never mind, not doing that. But that's what boldness looks like for us. Taking a step forward and saying, Jesus, we're going to trust you with this. Now, some of you, you give this every year. We do this every year. And some of you, this, there's this rhythmic obedience you have. I am not making light of that. That is a wonderful discipline. In fact, I need to grow in rhythmic obedience a little bit more. And my encouragement to you is to be bold and actually take a step back. Don't don't fill this out today. If you rhythmically every year give this, don't don't fill this out today. 
take time to simply carve out time to pray, you and your spouse, you and your family, and, and say, what, what does boldness look like for us in this sphere, in this way? I don't know, maybe it's the same, maybe it's different, I don't know. But actually take time to pray for boldness in this. Some of us taking a step forward, some of us taking a step back. But all of us taking that next step. That's the invitation. Where do you need a little less safety and a little more boldness? Now, last thing, as, as we wind down, this is a very important point. There is a difference between boldness and stupidity. Can I get an amen? amen? Yeah, okay. Just really quickly, there's a thin line sometimes between those two. I had a conversation with Josh Burns, one of our, uh, our children's director, and uh, he had a great insight about the difference between boldness and stupidity. He said, doing something bold makes you sweat a little bit. Doing something stupid makes everyone around you sweat. Right? We're, we're not advocating foolishness. We're not advocating stupidity. The Bible's really clear about that. If you make a mission pledge and then you lose your job tomorrow, wow, it might be really foolish for you to say, well, I can't put food on the table, but I'm going to do that. No, don't be foolish. That doesn't honor Jesus. So, so navigate that. What, think through. I, I hope you have people in your life who, you know, hey, you're doing something that's making me sweat a little bit. That's okay. But if you feel a beat of perspiration, that might be a good thing. It might be a step of boldness. Against all odds, God took this group of nobodies from the middle of nowhere, and here we are today. And that's, you know, that's crazy. That's insane. That's bold. And as you're praying through different parts of your life, as you're approaching this, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It is really easy to risk when you know you can't lose. Right? From, from our perspective, everything we do is risky. The relationships we start and the money we give and what if it doesn't pay out and what if, what if things fail. It's always risky from our perspective. It's not risky from God's. The sovereign God, the one who knows the end from the beginning, this isn't risky for him. God does not play dice. God does not risk. He knows what he's doing. And even if it feels scary, it's worth it. Even if it's costly, it's worth it. And I, I wonder, what would it look like for us to shake this community a little bit more because of boldness? Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that against all odds, we are, we are in this room today. Lord, thank you that because of your sacrifice, because of your love, that we have the opportunity to grow and to learn and to love and to serve. Lord, thank you for the folks who uh, paved the way for us, who led us here, people who have poured into our lives. Lord, I pray for boldness. <laughs> I confess, I, I don't uh, always want it. Uh, I don't always want to, to, to try and represent you boldly, Lord, but I want to follow you to the best of my ability. So Lord, change my heart. Give me boldness, Lord. Give me the reminder that the slayer of death, that the death of death itself is with us that Jesus has said he will be with us everywhere we go, in everything we do. Lord, I pray for families, I pray for marriages, that they would be marked not by safety, but also by boldness. Lord, I pray for our communities and our jobs and our workplaces, that they would be marked with boldness. In all these things, Lord, we, we trust in you because we know we cannot do them on our own. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.